Now, to turn with me in your pew Bibles to Acts chapter 19, uh, where we will actually be skipping over a passage in the middle of Acts, and we'll be picking up in verses 21 and following. And the reason for this sort of skip is really quite simple. Mark will be preaching on that passage, the sons of Sceva, next Sunday. And so we'll come around to it. But what we need to know for tonight, again, in Acts chapter 19, is that Mark is still on his third missionary journey, and he is in the city of Ephesus as well. Still there. And though by this point he is beginning to sense that his time is coming to an end, he's been there now for almost uh, three years. It's getting close to being the three-year mark, and he'll need to move along to continue his church planting and strengthening throughout the Greco-Roman world. Again, at this point in his mission's work, being that it's his third journey, he's not so much planting as he is going back through and sort of watering the churches, if we want to put it that way. All the while, he's also taking a collection, which we hear him mention at times in his own epistles and even here in Acts He's taking a collection for the Jewish Christians who are back in Jerusalem, the Christians who had been uh, sort of unable to leave. So after Acts chapter 8, which is the martyrdom of St. Stephen, what happens to most of the Christians there is that they are sort of forced out. They are persecuted. They come under persecution. So a lot of these Jewish Christians are forced out of Jerusalem by other Jews, Jews who are not Christians. And so the ones who are able to remain, maybe they have different reasons that they can't leave, they are are facing fierce opposition. And so Paul is, while he's visiting these Gentile churches, taking a collection and in hopes of bringing it back to Jerusalem. And he wants to do this because he wants to simply help them. And he also wants to encourage the Gentiles to be stewards of all that God has given them. But after even this, in Jerusalem, Paul is talking about how he wants to go to Rome. And in the book of Romans, he even mentions how after Rome, he wants to go to Spain, which is the outermost edge of the known world. And so, for this reason, the 17th century Lutheran Bible scholar, Johann Bengel, writes this. I love this little quote. No Alexander, no Caesar, no other hero comes close to the large-mindedness of this little Benjaminite. This little Benjaminite who has a huge vision and ambition for what he is hoping to achieve by the Spirit. And so to top it all off, Paul here is also well aware of his own mortality. He knows that going back to Jerusalem is going to bring him right into the bullseye of fellow Jews' anger, those who are persecuting the Jewish Christians. He knows if he goes back, he's going to put himself in harm's way at the very least. It could spell disaster. So he's got a lot on his mind. And so as we come to the reading tonight, Let's think of that. Let's think of what is on the Apostle's mind. Think about the weight that he is enduring. He has no home. And even though he's been in Jerusalem, or excuse me, in Ephesus for almost three years, and it's been sort of peaceful, he's beginning to feel fierce opposition rise again. So we'll pray and then we will read. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, Again, we ask that you would clear our minds, 
Help us to put the cares and anxieties of this present world to the side for a moment and to listen to your word, to listen to you speak. So Lord, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here is the word of the living God from Acts 19. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only of this trade of ours that may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Throughout the book of Acts up to this point, we've seen now many times how the gospel has a way of getting under people's skin. This is something of a running theme, as I've pointed out in several of my sermons. I, I sort of feel like I'm a little bit repeating myself here. But Acts has a way of showing how the gospel is received by some and not received by others. Jesus told the, the disciples that he was, to, he, was, he was sending them out to go to Jerusalem, the city in which he... The, the book begins to Judea, to then to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And while this may seem rather straightforward to us, it certainly wouldn't have seemed very straightforward to the disciples. How exactly was this going to happen? They, they were sort of a minority group in this large empire. Jews, wherever they go, are pretty, as we can see here, pretty easily distinguishable. And so they weren't sure how this was going to happen. They knew it was going to be a difficult road and that they would face opposition. And in fact, it's not even, they don't really get out into the empire until this stoning of Stephen. When this happens, they are then sort of dispersed or scattered. And this is known as the diaspora, which is a Greek word for the scattering of seed. We call it a dispersion, typically in English. And so this is what happens. The seed of God's people is scattered out into the Roman Empire. It's not exactly something that they seem to choose to do, but it's something that happens to them by circumstance. God is making them them spread. But like any seed that spreads, there's obstacles that come up along the way. There's weeds, or there's lack of sunshine or water, or maybe they fall upon rocky soil. And so, as I said, the story of Acts, it has acquainted us already with what these obstacles can look like. It shows us again and again various types of opposition. And so in regards to the Jewish faith, the gospel had found fierce religious opposition. The Jews were painfully aware that these little Christ followers, as they called them, that they posed an outside or an outsized threat to their religious dominance and to the status quo of their customs and practices and beliefs, even to their uh, little territory around Jerusalem. And this was because they knew that the gospel these Christians preached was exceptionally effective in causing a constant leak of their adherents who were more than tired of the Pharisaic demands of legalism and who were all the more willing to take on the easy yoke of Christ. But it wasn't just religious opposition that these early Christians faced. Of course, it's also political opposition, and we see this a lot. Up to this point in chapter 19, we've seen how both Paul and Peter have been attacked and imprisoned at different times by various rulers, sort of secular magistrates of the different parts of the empire. We also saw back in Acts chapter 17 in the city of Thessalonica how Paul and Silas's friend Jason was dragged before an, uh, uh, one of the city authorities by an angry mob, and they, it was the, they couldn't find Paul, and so they grabbed these two men who were associated with him, and they took them before the city authorities, and the city authorities got involved and essentially made them post bond and promised that Paul would not darken the doors of the city again. This all happened, of course, because Paul's preaching was the simple point that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. And this contrasted with the belief that Caesar was Lord. 
But besides this religious opposition and the political opposition, the early Christians also faced economic opposition. And this is what we find in our passage tonight. Like the owners of that demon-possessed girl back in the city of Philippi, when Paul exercises her demon and she is released and freed, they realize that they no longer have their source of income available to them. They get mad at Paul. And mayhem begins to break loose. Paul, by his gospel, is disrupting local economies. And this is similar, of course, to what's happening here. And today, by contrast to the ancient world, our economy is not that heavily dependent upon religious commitments of our culture, of our world. And so if we fail to understand this, we may read these stories and wonder, is it really that big of a deal, Demetrius? Or to the slave owners, or to the owners of the slave girl, is it really that big of a deal? Can't you just find work somewhere else? But the answer, of course, especially in this situation here in Ephesus, is that yes, it was a very, very big deal. The pagan worship of the first century was so ubiquitous and widespread that it was a fundamental part of their economic system. the The whole world that they had was largely dependent upon. Their religious worship. And so to get a sense of this difference between their world and ours, we can do a little thought experiment. Let's imagine for a second that everyone in the U.S. tonight, overnight, suddenly became a Christian. So that when we woke up tomorrow morning, poof, there was 330 million Christians. What would happen in this scenario to our American economy? Think about all the implications. I would say, for one thing, we would need a lot of churches to be built very quickly. And so the lumber economy, that market, would grow. It would surge overnight. There would be a great demand for wood. But over the course of time, if this were to persist, and we'll say that it does for the sake of the experiment, say this happens, this goes on for generations and generations. America is just 330, 350 million Christians. In order to meet those kinds of needs, we would also need, among other things, a really, really large grain economy to produce a lot of bread for communion. Christians like bread. Similarly, we would have to produce a lot of vineyards to make grapes for for wine or for juice so that we could celebrate communion. Just think about those two uh, things that would have to happen, those, those kinds of markets that would have to develop. And so again, for generations, let's say, that this continues. It goes on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And over time, our economy adjusts and it becomes propped up and supported by these, these fundamental parts of who we are as a nation. We would really depend on the farmers who farm the, the wine or the grapes and the wheat for the bread. But then let's imagine one day someone shows up from another country and they start preaching a different message. And let's say, just for the sake of this whole thing, it's something very foreign, very strange to our ears. They're preaching, let's say, a a sort of alien religion. It's about space aliens. And it's something we think is so crazy and far-fetched that nobody will really believe it anyways. And so we may think to ourselves, hey, we're okay we're doing all right. Uh, it, it's, it's so weird what he's saying. It's not going to make any converts. But then, ever so slowly, converts do begin to happen. And over the, a couple of years, 
He's developed quite the following. Thousands of people are now listening to this guy and following his religion. On the surface, it seems fairly harmless in the sense that he's not preaching hate or violence, but it's definitely making an impact now. And so we can't think anymore, some people begin to say. We can't think that it's just going to phase itself out. This weird preacher guy, he's still at it now, and except he's, he's got all these converts, and it's beginning to feel pretty serious, somebody might say. It almost seems like things are hitting critical mass. If it gets, gets any bigger, it's just going to go viral, and it's really going to be a problem. And when that happens, people begin to think to themselves, our livelihoods will be at stake. All the hundreds and thousands of farming families and all those who depend on them are going to come under pressure. They're going to feel it in their pocketbooks. And more than that, it may begin to make us feel like our civilization, our way of life is at stake. It seems like things will, get, will, be, will be doomed. And not to mention, of course, if we feel very pious, it, our churches are going to get emptier and our God is not going to be worshipped. This, in short, is how Demetrius felt in some way. For him, Paul's gospel, though it seemed foolish to his hearers, to many of the hearers, many of the, the Greeks, when, it, when they heard Paul's message, often would mock his message. It was foolishness to the Greeks. A God could not come in the flesh and die and be raised again. But Demetrius knew Paul's message at the end of the day really had the capacity to jeopardize everything, to jeopardize their way of life. So the comments of one Acts scholar who's spent his life studying the book of Acts, a professor by the name of Craig Keener, on this point he says this, Fitting his low social status as a metal worker, Demetrius's speech betrays limited rhetorical sophistication beyond its opening line, and its agendas suit what ancient audiences expected from demagogues. Nevertheless, whereas the city clerk will end Demetrius's riot by rightly declaring the innocence of Paul's companions, Demetrius, ironically, ironically because he's not supposed to be the smart one here, he ironically takes the threat of Paul's faith far more seriously. Paul did not consecrate temples, but he did preach against idols. Unknown to Luke himself, Paul's movement ultimately would supplant the worship of Artemis. Interesting points. Low in social rank and probably of education as well, Luke gives Demetrius at least the dignity of being a perceptive man. He's catching on to something that many are questioning. Many don't think he's right. We could say, yes, he's wrong for stirring up this opposition against the gospel. He's wrong to oppose God's word, but he's no foolish man. He sees what's going on. He sees that this has the potential to really become a problem for the sort of status quo in the city of Ephesus. It was going to hit him in his own pocketbook, especially. And though he feigns that he's very religious and is doing this for religious reasons, Luke clearly is suggesting here that his main reason is how it's going to affect him financially. And so this leads us to an important lesson we ought to learn tonight from this text. The gospel of Christ does, in fact, exist as a threat to societies of the human world. 
it threatens the foundations of human societies as they are opposed to God. Demetrius was afraid because he should have been. The town clerk did rightly point out that Demetrius would have and should have used the proper judicial authorities, but he was very wrongly into he was he was wrong to assume that Artemis was too deeply embedded in their society for anything to really happen to her. This city clerk thought she's too well loved, she's too famous, she's too worshipped here, and she has been for so long that this little message from this little man is not going to disrupt things. So his speech in verse thirty five is brimming with irony. He says Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of, Ephesia, or city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? And this here probably refers to a meteorite that would have fallen, and they may have associated that as a sign of Artemis's activity. She was the goddess of hunting, so perhaps they perceived it as some sort of projectile from Artemis. And so he says, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. She's saying, don't worry about it. Whatever he's saying, it's not going to affect us. But very clearly, he thought wrong. What he didn't realize was that, was that the gospel was good news of another kingdom. And that it cannot but help to disrupt and dismantle societies and ideologies and religions that oppose it. When it comes to the darkness of the world, the light of the gospel that this little Benjaminite Paul is preaching is going to dispel that darkness. It is a highly subversive message. We can think today of the nation of China, for example. We may wonder, how can they possibly see the gospel as a threat? The answer is because it is. It is a threat to any society that stands opposed to it. It's a threat even to us and to the parts of our society that stand opposed to God's word. In his book, The Word of God for the People of God, Reformed scholar Todd Billings says that the gospel, whenever it encounters a society for the first time, it has two effects, simultaneous effects that it has to, to do. The first one is indigenization, and the second is iconoclasm. So we'll look at each of these in turn. First, indigenization, to indigenize. What he means by this is that the gospel begins to embed itself deeply into the fabric of people's hearts and of society as a whole. And so as a result of this, one of the side effects, so to speak, is that any of their good and moral values and commitments and beliefs are embedded more deeply. And those are affirmed. Those are told by the gospel, yes, this is good. So, for example, we could think of a, a let's think of a tribe somewhere. I don't have anyone, any particular tribe in mind, but we can think of a tribe. And let's say in this tribe, the, the men care for the women well. They love the women well. But let's say also in this tribe, men are known and it's excused and even encouraged for men to beat their children whenever they are angry, the gospel would come in and the gospel would have two effects here. First, it would indigenize the value that this culture has for men treating women with respect and honor and care. The gospel would say, yes, 
That is good. Continue doing that. And more than just continue doing that, the gospel and the word of God will begin to give a moral backing for why this should be happening. And it will explain the relationship between men and women and what that should look like according to God's design. Similarly, but as a reverse, the gospel in iconoclasm, iconoclasm is just a fancy churchy word for idol smashing, it will come into this culture and it will smash idols. It will smash false beliefs and practices and values. And so if these fathers are known for beating their children, the, I, the, the gospel will iconoclastically call this to an end and say, no, this cannot be. And so, this iconoclastic tendency then of the gospel is what gets us into trouble. It's what got the ancient Christians into trouble. It's what has gotten Christians into trouble throughout the past 2,000 years as well. The gospel disrupts things. But it's not just that it wants to disrupt things. It's not that we go around smashing things for the sake of smashing things. The gospel wants to smash idols because those idols need to be broken, that we may be freed, and that our lives may be restored, that we may come to know the Lord. Nevertheless, we're going to face this kind of opposition. The gospel demands it. I I would even say, I would go so far as to say that in a culture where there the gospel comes and there is no iconoclasm, I question whether the gospel has been preached at all. So the other important lesson I want to focus on tonight then comes in verse 34. And we we read this. But when they recognized that Alexander was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Luke has already told us that they'd been cheering these words back in verse 28. But this time, following all the chaos and confusion, people are sort of losing what's going on. They're not even sure why they're there anymore, he says. He tells us that this time they go on and start chanting it for two hours. Basically, at this point in the protest, things had gotten way too out of hand. And this would have been a very, very large gathering. We're told that they go to the theater in Ephesus. And you can see a picture behind me. This theater holds its seats up to 24,000 people. And I imagine it was more than likely full on this day. And so if you were back in the rest of the city, you could very likely hear all the chanting that was happening, all the, the noise and chaos that was happening. And so the Jews, not wanting to take the blame, sort of wanting to separate themselves from the Christians, they put forward this man named Alexander in order to make the case that it was not they, the Jews, who were causing this, this craziness, but it was the Jewish Christians, and namely that guy named Paul and those who were following with them. So this is what Alexander gets up to do. He starts to motion with his hand, But as they see him and they notice that he's Jewish, they begin to think that he's about to uh, apologize, probably. Or they they think that by him standing up, it's sort of an implication that, that the Jews recognize they're guilty. And so noticing that these were Jews and that they were themselves were Gentiles, they begin to cheer again. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And for two hours this continues. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. What a scene it must have been. 
what a scene it must have been to hear from some distance. This whole thing had sort of become like a powder keg, just waiting for one little spark, and the whole thing would have blown up. Eventually, however, these cries did turn to silence. And in like manner, in due time, Paul's movement ultimately, as Dr. Keener points out, it ultimately did supplant the worship of Artemis. Yes, despite the many centuries of worship to her name, despite the adoration that peoples gave to her from near and far, and despite the depth of devotion she occupied in their idolatrous hearts, it was quieted. It came to a silence that day. It ended. And the silence is still a silence today. Though it certainly didn't happen overnight, it wasn't just magically everybody changed, and it certainly wasn't easy, the light of the gospel finally did expel the darkness. And their anxious and frantic chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, have turned now into songs of praise to the Lord. We see this, for example, in the fact that Paul would write a letter after this final journey. He would write a letter to the Ephesians, the letter we know today as Ephesians. He writes this to them, and there's a growing church there, and there are elders in place of this church, and they are a living testimony to the grace of God in opposition to the fallen faith of Artemis. And so today we might say, long forgotten is Artemis of the Ephesians. And praise be to God. For by the light of his gospel, he banishes darkness. He crushes idols. He frees captives. He repels evil and forgives sin. He turns enemies into his friends. And so tonight, as we come to our close, I want us to consider what God has done. To think back through the millennia and think about the changed world that this little Benjamite, Benjaminite, through his gospel preaching, and through the power of the Holy Spirit has affected. Today there's nobody chanting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. But there are people who are saying, great is God. And so I want to play a song. It's a song we've already sung tonight. We'll see it on the screen behind me. And you'll notice where the song picks up, the music fades out. We're going to jump into the middle of the song. The music fades out. In 2023, people are still singing this song. Amen, sound from his people again. Our God is still to be worshiped. Let's pray.